You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? Hope it's excellent. Uh, on this last day of the first half of the regular season. At least how the schedule clowns would like us to think of it. But we know <laughs> that we're past the halfway point, folks. You can't, you can't pull one over on a couple of morons like Alan and myself. <laughs> That's statistically inaccurate. <laughs> you can, in fact, pull one over on us many times. Uh, I disagree with you, Alan. I think if there's anything we've proven on this program, it's that our mastery of numbers is second to none. More on numbers later in the show, but first... Serious moron numbers. You'd... <laughs> And also more on. Perfect. Um, <laughs> if you would like to try to put one over on us, you can do that at any point by going to baltimoreonspodcast.com. Indeed you can. You can also reach us on the Twitters. I'm at Sam Dingman. Alan is at A Smith for our time. That's the number four. And you can also call us. Leave us a voicemail. 909-RIB-WARS is the number. But here we are <laughs> today uh, on episode 58 a uh, a very unlucky number in many ways for mm. the Orioles franchise. Um, in the last few years, Sam, I don't know if you've been following the saga of 58, but the following players have worn the number 58. Oh, boy. And this is, again, only in the past five years. I smell a rogues gallery coming <laughs> on. Alfredo Simone. Ah. Zach Phillips. Ugh. Brandon Snyder. Gah. Miguel Sokolovich. Yeah. I always say his name wrong. Sokolovich? Sokolovich. Sokolovich. Miguel Sokolovich. Your boy, Radham's Liz. That is my boy. <laughs> my boy Liz. And the indomitable Alejandro Friere. Ale- who? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's, I don't think that one's real. It's a it's a real person, and he played in 2005 for the Baltimore Orioles under the name fit number 58. Ugh. So I'm going to go ahead and put forward that we should strike the number 58 from the Orioles lineup moving forward. Has a number, and this is an open question, ever been anti-retired? <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of an example off the top of my head. Obviously, everyone knows about the, the tradition of retiring numbers, but I don't know that anyone has ever been anti-retired. But anyway, speaking of striking things from the proverbial record, mm-hmm. the number 58 also reminds me of a particular set of interesting public debates. Um, everyone who knows anyone, who knows anything about anything at all, knows that the Beatles catalog will enter the public domain, assuming copyright is not extended, in the year 2058. What is less common knowledge is that the year 2058 is also in the dystopic timeline sketched by Aldous Huxley in the book Brave New World, marks the end of the Nine Years' War and the beginning of the economic collapse. Now, devotees of Huxley will, of course, realize that in 2058, this case refers to the Gregorian calendar, but also corresponds with the year 150 AF, or 150 years after the first Model T Ford rolled off the assembly line. With me so far? I'm Henry not confused Ford, at all. Henry Ford in, in Brave New World has become a messianic figure in this version of reality, uh, with our Ford replacing our Lord in public discourse and the letter T being yelled at Orioles games during the Star-Spangled Banner. It's a, oh, very, no. it's a very grim vision. <laughs> it's a dystopic and bizarre future. However, we see that Huxley foresaw a dystopic future in which every aspect of humanity would be assembled. Human beings themselves would be built for the ideal. 
that'd be rolled off the assembly line and just sort of created in a lot of ways the model of the 1934 version of what the Model T was coming to represent. I see. Where fellow dystopian futurist George Orwell saw a future of banned books and controlled information, Huxley foresaw something perhaps even more grim, which is a future in which books would not need to be banned, as people simply would not have any interest in them, as they would have been constructed not to. Oh, dear. So you can see, Baltimoreans, why the number 58 is a grim and disturbing one, which is why uh, we are not actually listening to Baltimoreans episode 58, we are listening to Baltimoreans episode 18.47 times pi. <laughs> we here at Baltimoreans chose the Orwellian certainty that 3.141592 multiplied by 18.471 will always equal 58 over the blithe, soma-laced acceptance of curses and superstitions. And if you got the complexities of that joke, in its multiplicity, you win a Ferrari. <laughs> And if you <laughs> got the complexities of that joke and picked Zach Britton to outpitch Justin Verlander a couple weeks ago, uh, you now have two <laughs> two high-end Italian sports cars in your garage. What are you going to do with all those sports cars, dude? What are you going to do with all those sports cars? Uh, you may um, uh, drive to my house and uh, walk me through the logic of Alan's intro. <laughs> Because uh, I'm I'm a bit underwater with it. <laughs> you may have to listen back a couple of times. It's okay. <laughs> um, well, speaking of uh, logistical fallacies uh -huh. and inconsistencies. Certainly, we do that a lot here. Yes. Um, Alan, I, I wanted to, uh, just by way of uh, covering some news, which, right. as usual... There's a bit of. Which we've, as usual, buried. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's the All-Star game is coming up. Right, right. Um, two and days out. It's two days out. And uh, the Orioles are sending four, I think, uh, deserving representatives this year. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing that always comes up around the time of the All-Star game is the, the fact that uh, the fans vote on who will start the All-Star game. But the All-Star game has very real competitive implications right. in the Major League Baseball season because the team that wins gets home field advantage during the World Series. And fans are idiots. They, as a rule, <laughs> do not make good life choices, uh, as evidenced by the fact that a startling number of them listen to this program <laughs> when they could be uh, entertaining the object of their affection in the nude. I would like to say that uh, a similar number as people listening to this program voted for Derek Jeter to be in the All-Star game this year, despite the fact he didn't play any games. But that, that's not way, true. way, way many more people <laughs> voted for Derek Jeter that have ever even heard of this program. <laughs> Thank you for that correction. <laughs> Scotty just breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> and not having to correct that next week. Also, uh, do you think anybody, just going back to the entertaining the objects of their affection in the nude thing, do you think anybody has ever listened to this show while they're... Um, Making making the nasty? I would say certainly not to completion. <laughs> <laughs> Although that, given the length of some of our episodes, our hats are off to you, sir or madam. Anyway, I wanted to say this about that. <laughs> about which? <laughs> oh, the All-Star Game. Okay, The All-Star Game. The whole the sex thing is just a digression. Yeah, well. Uh, a humorous digression. <laughs> um, if we're going to allow... A fan vote to decide something as critical right as who gets home field advantage in the world series then 
we should admit the logical inconsistency of turning around and claiming that the World Series is the most hallowed, untouchably special series of baseball games that takes place over the course of a given season. Hmm. If we're comfortable with a fan vote deciding who starts the game that decides World Series home field advantage, why not let the fans decide what uniforms the World Series team wears? Sure. Or who the starting pitchers for each team will be? Or, and here's a shiny new Baltimoreans bleeding heart idea for you. Why not create an online bidding system where fans can bid what they think is a fair price for World Series tickets based on the teams who are competing and the leverage of a given matchup? Oh. Do those ideas seem a little too weird? <laughs> yes. A little too much like we're allowing fan influence to infringe on the supposed sanctity of the sport's competitive structure? I agree. They do. <laughs> Although I do like one. the ticket idea. Yeah, that ticket idea is good. <laughs> but this is why we shouldn't be allowing fan loyalties to have competitive implications in the first place. Sure. And as I thought about this, Alan, I realized it's just one of the many logical fallacies of the All-Star game. The idea is that these are the best players in all of baseball, right? right? So what is this ding-dong Steve Delabar <laughs> doing on the team? Does he have a nice life story? Absolutely. If you were assembling the best baseball team you could for a one-game playoff... Would you bend over backwards to put Steve Delabar on your team? I would not. I don't think you would. Furthermore, what's with this rule that every team gets to have one all-star? Do you remember right. the yeah. dark days of <laughs> <Yes>. 2010 <laughs> when Ty Wigginton <laughs> was the Orioles' lone all-star representative? And if it's not Ty Wigginton, it was a series of middle relievers yeah. who, for the first half of the season, for various matchup reasons, had thrown a sub-2 ERA. Exactly. Now, I don't know about you, Alan, but I would have preferred if the league was just honest with Orioles fans and said, look, you don't have anyone good enough to be on the best team we can make out of American League baseball players. Now, when you look at this year, do the Astros do. or the Twins or the White Sox really have anyone that we can say with a straight face, that guy's in the 99th percentile of performers this year? Altuve. 99th percentile? Uh, at second base? Yeah. I put him behind Cano and Pedroia. Sure. But Cano and Pedroia should still come first. Sure. 99th percentile. It's true. Pedroia's your starter. Cano's your reserve. I don't want no Yankees starting the All-Star game. <laughs> and I'm a fan, so I get to say. <laughs> so my point is, if we're actually talking about a legitimate All-Star game, okay, there are guys who shouldn't be on the team. Right. Oh, what's that you say? <laughs> the All-Star game should be about pageantry and fun and selling hideous jerseys? The All-Star game should be about pageantry, fun, and selling hideous jerseys. Oh. And do you also say that it shouldn't be too caught up in the idea of actual competition? I do say that. That it's a refreshing break from the day-to-day -day <laughs> horse race of the pennant chase? And that it's a chance to see what would actually happen if you put a fantasy team on a field for a night? Yes, I have. You say all of those things? I have said all of those things. Great. Then get rid of the part where the outcome does have actual competitive implications. Because the sure. two things are not reconcilable. It's true. End rant. <laughs> now, if you're if you're going to say that, uh, that the game does matter, um, and it doesn't seem to me, I mean, that it matters all that much, because I don't know how many Game 7s there have actually been in the World Series in the last... 15 years but um doesn't like it it doesn't seem like it matters as much as some other things um why where did that where did that come from and was it because people were taking it so not seriously that they just weren't playing my understanding and i'm completely speculating here is that it was part of the take back baseball's reputation 
effort following the strike in oh. uh, 94. Okay, so this is a way to get people, get fans back on It was board. a way of guaranteeing that fans would stay engaged with, uh, with would get re-engaged very quickly with what was happening. We're going to have to have Scotty check the facts on that. It may also have something to do with a rebranding effort in the wake of the steroid scandal. Mm. Um, but it's it somehow caught up in that whole... A lot to get over there. Dark for period. Baseball. They had a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of bodies to bury. Yes, yes. Interesting, um, interesting. So I... Um, I don't think that All-Star games are interesting. I've never felt that like All-Star games are interesting. And I think that especially um, in uh, football or basketball, where playing together makes a big difference, um, you know, and, and how well you run off of other players and how well you, you know, run set plays and things makes a huge difference. The quality just goes way, way down. In baseball, at least, it's such a game of individual matchups that you do get to see the Verlander versus Posey um, right. matchup that you don't get to see very often during the regular season. So it does have that going for it. That sort of individual matchup thing, I, I, I think, is more appealing than the ridiculousness that is the NBA or the ridiculousness that is the yep. NFL game. I'll grant you that. In the NFL, gr- they're all just trying so hard not to get hurt that they play at like three-quarters speed. Right, right. I mean, I'll grant you all of that. And and there's a certain amount of that in the All-Star game, too, where you can tell players, and I'm glad that they aren't playing full out because I, you know, it's like the World Baseball Classic. Like, right. the World Baseball Classic is not worth, uh, <laughs> like, your Hanley Ramirez's and Mark Teixeira's getting injured to the point that they can't contribute during the actual baseball season. Right. Um, I, I guess I just think, uh, and, and I, and I, enjoy, I mean, I don't make time to watch the All-Star game every year, but I... Um, I, I, I don't dislike the idea that it exists. I just have problems with these specific issues. Right. Um, but I would rather, if I'm going to watch a matchup like Verlander against Posey, uh, I mean, that's a matchup that we could conceivably see. Right. You know, the the Tigers did play the Giants in the World Series last year. Right. Um, and I would much rather see it under those, those circumstances. Yeah. Um, and, you know... It, if the if you're instead talking about Felix Hernandez against Buster Posey, which is much less likely, um, to me it, it's much more exciting to 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 think about what what do the Mariners have to do to get to the World Series yeah. to set that up as a potential matchup, rather than some meaningless game that's based on a series of logical fallacies. <laughs> Someone should uh, trade for Felix Hernandez so he doesn't have to. So he gets to pitch in a playoff game at some point. Well, uh, I don't want to to spoil anything, but we do have a gentleman who will be <laughs> joining us on the line later in the program who who may have thoughts on that matter. Uh, we are, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, pleased to announce that we have convinced Dan Duquette to join us once again <laughs> for an interview here on the program. But but before we get to that, Alan, the the other thing that is going on. Um, that I think would be uh, would be of interest to our listeners right. is uh, the debate about no hitters. Sure, uh, whether or not they um, are should be treated as the special events that they have historically been treated as. And congratulations, by the way, to Tim Lincecum and Homer Bailey. Well, who just last night, Lincecum just last night threw a, a no hitter. Yes, uh, and used I think 145 pitches to do it. I believe it was 148. Whew. Yeah, that's a that is a workload. It is. It is. Um, the first thing I wanted to say about this whole uh, no hitter nonsense was actually said best by a very great baseball Twitter account called Mighty Flynn. Mm. 
Um, and it, if people don't know, Major League Baseball has this promotion with dominoes running, where anytime <laughs> someone pitches a no-hitter, it is dubbed a domino-no. Oh, no. And you can get half price off your pizza or something. Uh, but in the words of Mighty Flynn, dear MLB, I don't want a shitty Domino's pizza. I want to be allowed to watch games on Saturdays. <laughs> Which is, of course, a reference to the absurd television contract with Fox. Right. Um, that Major League Baseball has, has locked us out of. Yes. Uh, now, there's been a lot of talk about the validity of no-hitters this season, largely due to this guy from the MLB network named Brian Kenny, who's a big Sabre guy and who thinks people have been brainwashed into believing no-hitters are bigger achievement than they actually are. Right. And that they have a lot to do with getting lucky and that a lot of times guys actually put up pretty ugly stat lines around the zero hits, whether it's 148 pitches mm-hmm. or seven walks or three hit batters or whatever. By contrast, there's a movement to raise awareness around another kind of pitching achievement, which people are calling a Maddox, which is a complete game shutout where the pitcher throws fewer than 100 pitches. Wow. I think there's a lot of validity to that. Yeah. Uh, especially when you look at the fact that, as Brian Kenny pointed out last night on Twitter, Johan Santana's career has gotten completely derailed. Right. In part due to the Mets leaving him on the mound for 137 pitches in his 2011 no-hitter. And you have to be worried about that for someone like Lincecum, who doesn't seem to have the sort of strength and durability factor all that nailed. He is a tiny little man. <laughs> but with all of that said, okay, I think we also need to remember that a no-hitter is still a pretty goddamn rare athletic <laughs> achievement. Yeah, it's still pretty awesome. And throwing one doesn't mean we have to canonize the guy who does it as one of the all-time greats. Right. Was Roy Halladay's no-hitter in his first ever playoff start an affirmation that he's probably one of the all-time greats? Yes. Sure. <laughs> but what's even more awesome, I think, is when someone like Dallas Braden or Edwin Jackson does it. Right. Because it's a reminder that no matter how unsuccessful their career record might be, these are still guys who have spent their entire lives dominating on a baseball field from t-ball to little league to varsity american legion college and even if they haven't been able to hack it at the pro level they're still capable of reaching down into their gut and summoning up whatever magic the scouts saw however many years ago and that got them here in the first place it's still a special night for baseball when someone pulls it off and i don't think there's anything wrong with celebrating that I agree. And I think that uh, the thing you're talking about specifically is, I think, very relevant to the question of where Felix Hernandez continues to pitch, Mm. actually. Mm. Because to me, um, baseball is one of those games where you can be on a bad team and you can be on a perennially bad team and never really even get a chance to sniff the playoffs. Yep. And still go out and have a specific day, a moment in the sun that gets the value that it deserves for your for your hard work. This sort of segues into something that I wanted to mention on the program. Yeah. Um, about a oft-stated but never uh, maybe particularly publicly admitted um, predilection of mine, which is <laughs> my favorite Baltimore Oriole um, ever of all time is Jeremy Guthrie. Ever? Ever. Of all time. My favorite Baltimore Oriole. Not going to go with Brooks Robinson. Nope. Jeremy Guthrie. Not going to go with Frank Robinson. Here's the thing about Brooks Robinson and Frank Robinson and Cal Ripken and all those folks. Obviously, (laughs) significantly more important to the Orioles franchise. Not significantly more important to my experience of the Orioles franchise. I never watched those guys play. I I watched Cal play at a period of time when he was already being lionized and I didn't really understand exactly the significance of how awesome he was. But for me, Jeremy Guthrie 
going out. You know, he was the he was the Orioles opening day starter for three years in a row, and he'd go out there and he'd get shit canned. He'd get knocked <laughs> around. He'd get hit hard. He'd get hit soft. Sometimes he'd go out and he'd he'd put up you know seven innings of one run ball and take the loss. And sometimes he'd go out there and he'd give up eight runs in the first three innings and take the real loss. But he kept showing up and kept going and kept eating up innings and kept like anchoring a rotation in a way that uh, he did it with grace and class and charm. And he did it uh, in a way that he never, he, he always wanted to win and he never, he never accepted losing and he never sort of like allowed the, the fact that the Orioles were bad from making him, you know, prepare 110%, go out and like pitch as well as he possibly could. Um, and it's something that I, every time I would watch Jeremy Guthrie pitch, I would know that the Orioles were 42 games out of first, and this was a lost season, and there wasn't even really anything to get excited about next year because it was 2009, and our uh, the, the the ship of state was crashing into the iceberg of too much spending and Albert Bell contracts, and things were bad. You'd still, going into the th- top of the third inning, look up and see that there were zero hits that he'd mm. given up so far and be like, you know what? This could be the day that we get to recognize how awesome Jeremy Guthrie is. Like, this could be his day. Unfortunately, that has never happened. (laughs) But I think that that sort of, like, moment of greatness gives you something to root for and something to, like, uh, uh, glorify these guys who are just, like, out there working hard, not necessarily, like you're saying, ending up as the the Cy Young winner or really necessarily becoming a, um, like, a... Uh, 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 top of the rotation banner person, but like they put a lot of work to get to the majors, and it's fun to root for. Well, I mean, it's it's an excellent point, and it, and it you know it's really different to be watching the achievements of Manny Machado say mm-hmm. right now in the context of a generalized team renaissance yeah. than it would be if he was the only reason we were turning on the television every night. Right, right, and I mean, and that's that is incredibly fortunate. I think that he's. This is happening in, at a time and in a way that allows him to like be synonymous with the, the the team not sucking. I'm I'm with all of your argument except for the charm part because for my money, Jeremy Guthrie <laughs> tweets about Justin Bieber six hundred percent too much. <laughs> you take that out of the picture. Yeah, but that that wasn't happening in 2009. We didn't have Twitter yet. <laughs> well, that just means he was thinking it in secret. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> and in this Aldous Huxley universe, I am glad that we have a service that allows us to monitor people's minute-to-minute thoughts. <laughs> Move directly into his head and see exactly where he's coming from. <laughs> um, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have we've we've thrown a lot at you here so far yeah. in the program, uh, and a lot um, of strong opinions. We'd uh, we'd love to know your thoughts on it. So again, you can reach us by going to baltimoreonspodcast.com, clicking on contact. You can call us at 909-RIB-WARS. You can email us, baltimoreonspodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of the Huxleyan communication mechanism that uh, the technological overlords have developed, you can tweet at us, Hmm. at asmith for our time at Sam Dingman. That may be more Orwellian. Orwellian? Mm. Okay. I'm sorry, I have my uh, uh, dystopian auteurs confused. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. listening 
Baltimore. The home of the all-weather fan. This is Alan Smith. And this is Sam Dingman. And ladies and gentlemen, I am sure that I am not alone in being outraged at the extremely laconic manner in which Fred Manfra calls baseball games. <laughs> but perhaps never has it been more painfully on display than Friday night when Edward Encarnacion, in the heat of an AL East series just as the first half of the season is winding down, with the top three teams separated by just six games, hits a home run to give the Blue Jays an early lead in the ballgame. Now, I think we can agree that's a fairly exciting moment in a baseball game. Can we agree about that? We can indeed agree about that. Not so, <laughs> according to Fred Manfra, because this is how he rendered it. Big, strong, right-handed batter. The 2-0 delivery with two down, and Encarnacion drills it deep to left field. It's way back. It's going, going, gone. It's going, going, gone. I'm asleep right now. <laughs> now, I want to stress <laughs> that as I heard this call, I was sitting in the backseat of a taxi, clutching my phone close to my ears to hear the call over the cacophony of New York City traffic. I'm sure I was not the only Orioles fan who was listening to this game and so many others that Manfra has mangled over the years <laughs> under what I think it's fair to characterize as extreme duress. Fred Manfra has arguably the coolest off-the-field job in all of baseball. He's tasked with narrating every event, plot twist, and nuance of an endlessly complex game to millions of listeners who can't see what he's talking about. Does this sound like the voice of a man who is thrilled by that challenge. Big, strong, right-handed batter. The 2-0 delivery with two down, and Encarnacion drills it deep to left field. It's way back. It's going, going, gone. It's going, going, gone. <laughs> now, Alan, this, this particular bone that I'm in the process of picking with Fred Manfra is nothing new to you or any of our listeners. It's, right. it's a frustration we all share and have for many years. And I was, in fact literally about to write a strongly worded letter to my congressman concerning this <laughs> national outrage when I made what I think, you'll agree, is a startling discovery. Oh. Fred Manfra, Alan, has a second job. Oh. And one at which... Much like Gary Thorne. Indeed. Huh. Indeed. I mean, and, and who can blame these Orioles broadcasters? And so after so many slow years... Right. You got to start looking for other work in case the team is actually so bad that it ceases to exist. A little bit on the side there. But this job, Alan, is one at which, in stark contrast to his work at a radio, as a radio broadcaster, he excels. Oh. Well, thank God he's good at something. The job is singer of lullabies, or oh. lullabyist, as <laughs> those in the profession prefer to call themselves. And in <laughs> well, intern Scotty did a little bit of research. Oh, thanks, and believe Scotty. it or not, he was able to dig up one of Fred Manfred's lullabies, one that in fact appears to have been recorded and produced in the short time between last Friday's broadcasting debacle <laughs> and the recording of today's episode of Baltimoreans. He's got a lot of work, Manfred. It goes like this: big right-handed batting first baseman. Had a great month of June, of course, the 11-game win streak would attest to high numbers offensively for the Toronto Ball Club. Encarnacion has had 19 at-bats now against Chris with six hits. <laughs> Big, strong, right-handed batter. The 2-0 delivery with two down, and Encarnacion drills it deep to left field. It's way back. It's going, going, gone. 
It's going, going gone. It's going, going gone. Big right-handed batting first baseman. High numbers offensively. Isn't that amazing? Can we agree that while Manfra's bored, frustratingly affected, <laughs> sleepy, vaguely annoyed vocal stylings suit him terribly as a play-by-play announcer, they make him a stunningly compelling lullabyist. <laughs> I will say that lullaby had a little bit more on the drums than I'm used to. It was a little more R&B <laughs> than you want in your, in your typical in your, lullaby. your typical go-to-sleep little baby sort of scenario. Right, right, right. Uh, well, you know... You can't argue with record sales. It's true. And from what, <laughs> in turn, Scotty was able to dig up. Uh, Freddie M is doing very well for himself on the Billboard charts. Well, God bless having a side project. In that know. very competitive lullaby category. <laughs> New York Times bestseller. Yep. 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 All uh, right. Well, I, I for one, um, th- th- this, this makes me feel better about him a- as an announcer. Uh, it doesn't really make okay the back and forth between him and uh, Joe Angel. Well, nothing could. <laughs> nothing could. Maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll find out that uh, Joe Angel um, is, uh, you know, a professional fly fisher or something. <laughs> I'm still not sure that would help. Yeah, it, w- it also wouldn't make for very good podcast audio. So Maybe uh, Mighty Casey will turn out through all of this. Uh, Mighty Casey Willett is a couples therapist. <laughs> If only we could secretly somehow capture some audio of one of his sessions. Well, we'll have to put intern Scotty on that one. Just see what you can dig up, buddy. Just see what you can dig up. Scotty, get on it. While you do that, let's get on the phone with Dan Duquette, who has graciously agreed to join us one more time. And Are Alan, sure uh, this is a good idea, Sam. It's, uh. I promise it's a good idea. And, and I want to apologize again for, for ditching you. Uh, last time when we did this. This time, I'm really excited. I, I'm just feeling a little bit tired, so I'm going to run to the corner, get a cup of coffee. I'll come back, we'll get on the phone, and we'll do this thing. All right? Did you listen to the last one? Of course I did. Of course I did. Uh, and, and and that's why I think with the two of us here, <laughs> All right. All it, right. it'll probably go better. Let's do it. All right? I'll be right back. Okay. home of the all-weather fan. I'm Alan Smith, and shockingly, Sam's not yet back from getting his coffee. I suppose I should have expected that. (sighs) Ladies and gentlemen, in our last episode, we played you an interview we had with Orioles Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations, Dan Duquette. And if you listened to the show, I think you would probably tell that we didn't feel that great about the way things went. Um, Shockingly enough, Dan emailed us after the episode and said he thought that we, in fact, represented him better than literally any other media outlet to whom he's granted an interview in his entire career. Since we are, in many ways, just suckers for flattery, and also since we were unsuccessful at booking any other guests this week, we've decided to invite him back for a follow-up on today's show. So buckle up, folks. Here he is once again, Orioles Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations, Dan Duquette. What up, Dan? Danny gets no use to fight. Don't you know uh, Dan, you Dan? can't win? Mr. Duquette. You're no exception Dan, we are, to um, the rule. 
we're on the air here. Dan? You fool. Dan, we're, we're, we are uh, on the air right now. Oh, uh, I'm sorry, Alan. I was just hearkening back to my days with the Wakona Park Community Theater. I don't know if you were aware that during my protracted absence from professional baseball in any form, I appeared in a production of Damn Yankees as part of a cast which also featured opera star Maureen O'Flynn. Really? That <laughs> that sounds way too specific to be true. Or is it way too specific to be false? The point is, Alan, the memorable Fair words enough. of Lola will also form the contents of my next trade sales pitch. Oh, yeah? From Lola, huh? So are you saying that the acquisition of Scott Feldman might not be the only move we make before this year's trading deadline? Certainly not. We've continued scouting the likes of Matt Garza and Bud Norris, and we're confident that if the right opportunity exists, we'll make another move to bolster our rotation. And you think that singing a few lyrics from Damn Yankees, and uh, exceptionally poorly, I might add, to Theo Epstein or any other general manager is going to be enough to get a deal done. Well, uh, I don't know if you noticed, Alan, but I acquired Scott Feldman in exchange for a squirt gun and a can of lighter fluid. I thought you acquired him in exchange for Jake Arrieta and Pedro Strope. Is there a difference? You know, I guess there really isn't. But which one is which in that metaphor? I think it works both ways. Huh, you're right. I think it does too. All right, let's move on. Since we have you here, uh, I wanted to know your thoughts on uh, Ichiro Suzuki's historic pursuit of 4,000 career hits. Um, as you know, and I think many morons out there listening know, Ichiro amassed uh, 1,278 hits over the course of his career in Japan and has since hit nearly 2,700 more since coming to the major leagues in 2001. Um, so what, what are your thoughts, Dan, on the potentially historic implications of this feat? since there are only two other players in Major League history to have reached 4,000 hit threshold, and what do you think about that and how we reflect on Suzuki's career? Well, uh, I'll be honest with you, Alan. I, I think it's all a load of garbage. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry? Uh, you think it's a load of garbage? That's right. I'm not saying the 1,278 hits he got in Japan aren't impressive, but uh, he didn't get those hits in the Major Leagues. So for Major League Baseball to be suggesting on their own website, which they've done, that those hits have the same standing as the hits Ichiro has gotten in the U.S., uh, seems pretty disingenuous to me. A couple years ago, when Justin Verlander won 24 games for the Tigers, the media cited Lefty Grove's seemingly untouchable single-season record of 31 for the Philadelphia Athletics in 1931, but make no mention of Victor Starfin's 42 victories for the Tokyo Kyle Jingun in 1942. In 2001, when Randy Johnson racked up 371 strikeouts, we watched breathlessly as he approached Nolan Ryan's record of 383, leaving aside the fact that neither man ever came close to the 401 punchouts recorded by Yutaka Inatsu for the Hanshin Tigers in 1968. Now, we don't recognize Victor Starfin's 42 victories or Yutaka Inatsu's 401 strikeouts as having Major League standing because they weren't tallied in Major League games. So why then, Alan, do Ichiro Suzuki's 1,278 hits in the Nippon Professional Baseball League suddenly carry the same weight as every one of Ty Cobb or Pete Rose's? Wow. Wow, that's, that's a, a very good and surprisingly adept response there, Dan. Um, and, and, you know, when I think about it, I also have the same concerns about the idea that 
any statistics achieved in the Nippon Professional Baseball League would be granted full legitimacy when, say, Josh Gibson's reported 962 home runs in the Negro Leagues are generally discredited as an artificially inflated statistic. Well, Alan, as I'm sure you're aware, when it comes to race in this country, we're only willing to acknowledge diversity insofar as it serves a marketable narrative of progress. When it comes to incidents where the moral ground is murkier, we tend to retreat instantly into the comfort of stereotypes and often problematic notions of monolithic identity. Dan, I have to say, I am made both confused and uncomfortable by the fact that you've made mostly thoughtful and coherent points in this week's interview, whereas last week you were an absolute train wreck. Well, don't get too far ahead of yourself. Let's see what happens on the last question. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay. Uh, We do have one last question for you this week uh, as to whether or not you're concerned that Chris Davis's rapidly increasing strikeout rate pretends a second-half regression that might severely hobble the offense at critical points in our playoff push down the stretch. Uh, I'm so sorry, I've got to go, Alan. That's my waiver wire alarm. It <laughs> appears that the Royals have just BFA J.C. Gutierrez. Who? Da- Dan, who? What? Wh- you couldn't possibly hope to find yet another diamond shimmering in the rough landscape of baseball's castaways and ne'er-do-wells, could you? Especially from the Royals? Well, Dan appears to be gone, so I guess we will have to wait and see. Listening to Baltimore on the home of the all weather fan. This has been Sam Dingman. This is, as always, Alan Smith. We thank you, ladies and gentlemen, very much for listening to episode 58 of the program. Uh, uh, correction, Sam. Oh. Uh, actually, it was not 58 of the program. Oh, was it not? Remember, if you'll remember back, it was uh, oh, 3.14152 I... times 18.475. <laughs> Please, uh... Please, ladies and gentlemen, update your Baltimoreans listener journals to reflect that information uh, or continue having sex with your partner, whichever the case may be. Got that in again, so that's good. Um, Which may be something you're saying to your partner as you... Okay, stop, stop, stop. Forward. God damn it. This is why we always go over. Yeah, it's true. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we'd love to know your thoughts on the opinions we stated about the All-Star game and about the no-hitters. Um, right. You can reach us as always, baltimoreonspodcast.com. Click on the link that says contact. Give us a call. Give us an email. Give us a twiddle, um, which you may be doing to your partner. Nope. <laughs> nope. I'm not doing it. Special thanks to uh, Orioles pre- Vice President of Baseball Operations, Dan Duquette, for his surprisingly cognizant perspective this time around was, Sorry was he good it, this time he, he, he came through a little bit this time you know i, I some actual uh, some thoughts some real thoughts this may be a little bit of cold comfort for you but uh i did have a very nice cup of coffee <laughs> no, that's great I'm, I'm i'm happy thanks also to fred manfra who did not consent to being mercilessly lampooned um and uh oh thank you in in more real terms to uh the music uh, the creators of the music that we use on the program, which are, as always, Marshall York on the Baltimore Ons theme song, the band Weather Report, uh, who also didn't give their consent to have their <laughs> music used. Uh, that's from the album Weather Report. 
and uh, the song is Birdland, and also The Black Crows, with the song Kicking My Heart Around, uh, from the album, I think it's from their greatest hits, I gotta sure. look that up. Uh, thanks also to intern Scotty for that dope bass line underneath the Fred Manfra <laughs> lullabies. Did you know Scotty played the bass? Yeah. Yeah, we're learning a lot about Scotty. What? You guys have like this whole mind meld going on. I didn't sure. know he played the bass. Well, he's doing a lot of research for me recently. So. I, I assumed he hired Flea for that. <laughs> well, on the budget we give him, not likely. <laughs> I mean, that's true. That's true. All right, folks. We'll be back next week. Until then, adieu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>